Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Before we start, if this is your first time listening to the 10% Happier podcast, A, welcome, and B, if you like the show, do me a solid. Take a second and subscribe, rate the podcast, and if you really want to hook me up, tell some friends about how they too can find us. Go on your social medias and spread the word. Now here's today's show. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. My guest this week is a guy I met a couple of years ago, shortly after my book came out. He came to my office and interviewed me. I had no idea it was such a big deal, uh, but now I do. Uh, his name is Rich Roll, uh, and he is, uh, you may have heard of him. He's got a very popular podcast. He's also an author and uh, ultra-endurance athlete. Am I putting that correctly? Uh, that's fairly correct. Fair, what's the absolutely <laughs> correct way to say it? <laughs> well, the big deal part, I don't know about that. Oh, that, oh, the big deal part is, yeah. but ultra endurance athlete is is correct. Yeah, that's correct. And also, you do all this while being plant based. In other words, you're a mm-hmm. vegan. Uh, so a lot of people wonder how can you uh, exert uh, yourself the way in the ways in which you do while eating no meat, which we'll get to. But I want to start with the question I always start with, which is, are you a meditator? And if so, how'd you get there and why? I am a meditator. I've had a interesting kind of relationship with meditation, an evolving relationship with meditation. I think my first introduction to meditation was in rehab, where I lived for 100 days when I was 31 years old. Uh, and what it came were you coming off of? Alcohol. Yeah, I had an uh, interesting descent into the depths of alcoholism that took me to some pretty dark places throughout my 20s. I uh, was lucky enough to hit that bottom and uh, surrender to the problem that I was having and sought out help and went to rehab in Oregon where I lived for 100 days. And that was my first introduction to many things, uh, a toolbox for how I live my life today. But one of them is meditation, which is part of the 12 steps. And I can't say that it really stuck. They listed as prayer or, or, or meditation. Right, right, yeah. right exactly. And so and what, what did they teach you? As they a... don't really teach you much of anything. Oh. Uh, they just sort of say this is part of it. And it, it kind of gets brushed over, I think, in my mm-hmm. opinion, now with what I know about meditation and how impactful it has been in my life. It's certainly uh, a component of sobriety in that construct. Um, but I would say that it's underemphasized. Mm-hmm. But, I, but that was the first you know, introduction. And then after that, I started – uh, going to yoga classes and was introduced to it a little bit more through that uh, medium. But it never became a regular practice or a priority uh, for me until recent years. And it, and it really came through doing my podcast and interviewing uh, meditation teachers and practitioners, uh, friends of mine. And it just became very clear to me that this was a blind spot uh, that I really needed to incorporate into my life. And, and since then, it has incrementally grown into a priority and something that I take pretty seriously now and have found to be extremely beneficial. Can you give me a sense of what your practice is? I keep it really simple. I don't get too dogmatic about it, and I don't get too caught up in technique. I really just try to focus on the breath and uh, stay out of sort of the self-judgment that I think trips up a lot of people. Um, How's that going for you? Yeah, it's up and down. You know what I mean? Like uh, I get, you know, two seconds of peace and then, you know, the mind intervenes once again, as it always does. Uh, but rather than beat myself two up Two seconds about is that, good, by the way. Yeah, I know. So you know. Well, that, that's after years of doing this, yeah. right? 
and just try to continually, you know, release it, release it, release it, and bring it back to the breath and hopefully uh, incrementally get a little bit better. And, you know, I've noticed the benefits in many ways in my life. And so, you know, I, I believe in it strongly. And I think part of my evolution was for, for many years as an ultra-endurance athlete, like I spent a lot of time in solitude training, like lots of hours on the bike, really long runs. And there's a certainly an active meditation component to that. And I've gotten a lot of benefit out of that. And for many years, I sort of said, well, that's my meditation. Yeah. And I think a lot of I athletes that do that time. all the yes, time. Yes, yes. And my wife, who's uh, a much more avid and experienced meditator than myself, would constantly say, that's great, Rich. But like, I think you really are missing the bigger picture here. There's something to a structured, formalized meditation practice that is qualitatively different from what you're experiencing when you're training. And I would tell her, yeah, but you don't know what I'm doing. Like, you know, you don't understand. But when I actually committed to doing a formal meditation practice, I realized the difference. And so I'm always quick to point that out to the many athletes that I that I speak with. Yeah. So can I give my little shtick on this? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not for you. It's for anybody who's listening. Uh, because I've been mapping out with some, uh, with some colleagues of mine from the 10% Happier app company, like all the reasons that people give for not meditating. And one of them is blank is my meditation Mm -hmm. or running is my meditation. Gardening is my meditation. Petting my dog is my meditation. I don't need to meditate because I'm already doing this thing. And my answer to that is maybe depends how you're doing it. Like if you run the way I run, which is that you're rehearsing all the stuff you're going to say to your boss Mm -hmm. or you're um, uh, listening to a podcast or listening to music, that is not meditation. If you are running and your headphones are out and you're feeling your footfalls, you're feeling the wind on your face, you're feeling the motion of your body, and then every time you get distracted, you start again, well, then you're meditating. But I don't know many people who actually run like that or garden like that or pet their dog like that. And if you do, then great. Then blank is your meditation. But if you don't, then a formal seated practice might be something you want, want yeah, to look and, into. And, and conversely, if you're sitting in lotus position and your your fingers are in the right place and you have your mala beads in your hand, but you're rehearsing what you're going to say to your boss, that's probably not meditation either. Manifestly <laughs> not meditation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. However, I think it, it really on that one, just the only thing I'd say is because I don't want people to hear that and say, well, I, I sit and I in whatever position you don't you can sit whatever position you want just for the record you don't have to sit in in a lotus position you can sit in a chair but a lot of people sit and feel completely distracted they do find themselves rehearsing arguments with their boss or planning lunch or whatever as long as i mean the the the, the only ingredient that needs to be added there is the intention to focus on your breath or whatever mm-hmm. your object of meditation is and then every time you get lost start again so don't feel guilty listeners, if you're finding yourself getting distracted a million times, because that's the whole game, as you said when you eloquently described your yes, own practice. I would agree with that. Thank you. Thank you. So, so so this has been a couple of years of a really sustained, serious practice on your end? Yeah, I would say about three years, two and a half years. And what kind of? I want to hear about the impacts in your life. I'm just going to pick one narrow area first, which is on your athletics. Has it had an impact on your performance? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the biggest impact that it's had is the ability to anchor yourself in the present moment. So when and and to become the observer of your thinking mind, and I'm sure you talk about this all the time, but the thinking mind is very good at certain things. Uh, 
but it's probably most skilled at talking you out of whatever it is you're attempting to do. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, the self-defeating thoughts, like I have a lot of insecurities and a lot of anxieties and and those inevitably crop up. And when you're, uh, whether you're training or you're racing, and I'm in these extended, you know, incredibly long races that I do, it's, it's impossible to not have that moment where everything everything in your mind and your body is telling you to stop or this, giving this you all is, the reasons why this you is stupid why are yeah. you doing this you could right. be at home with your kids you could be eating a cheeseburger exactly well not the cheeseburger for you. and to be to be able to distinguish that from your higher consciousness and to understand that this is just the chatter of the idle mind and that you actually have the ability the uh the ability to discern the difference and make a decision even if it's just that like extra little moment to understand that so that you're not reactive and you can actually contemplate an appropriate response and anchor yourself back into the present moment and move forward. Bingo. How old are you now, if you don't mind? I just turned 50. You look good. How far can you run at age 50? Because my knee's blown out from running on a (laughs) treadmill. Uh, I can run pretty far. I would say I haven't raced since 2011. So my training kind of was very intense from around 2007 to 2011. And then since then, it's been about podcasting and talking to people like you and writing books and travel and the like. But turning 50, I've now uh, kind of refocused. I want to have a performance goal for this year. So I'm doing a big race in September. So I've actually just gotten back into some pretty structured, serious training, and it's starting to ramp up because I want to see what I can do at 50. What does that mean, a a race? Like when you say a race, is that like you're going to run 5K? What are you talking about? Uh, Well, the race, I'll I'll, I'll set the stage by providing some context. The the race that I've specialized in in the past in is a race called Ultraman, which is a double Ironman distance triathlon. It's a three-day 320 mile circumnavigation of the big island of Hawaii. That's ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Uh, and I've done very well in that race. I'm not an Ultraman. Uh, <laughs> I'm like yeah. whatever the opposite of Ultraman yeah. <laughs> is. Couchman. Well, you're Ultraman in your own world. No. You know what I mean? Not, in no world am I an Ultraman. Uh, I don't but anyway, know I'm a big, big I'm, you know, I give you your propers. So, uh, and that race is like uh, the first day you. You swim uh, 6.2 miles and then ride your bike 90 miles. The second day, you ride your bike 171 miles. And the third day, you celebrate this whole ridiculous affair by running 52.4 miles, a double marathon. (laughs) So that's pretty far. I haven't done anything like that in a couple of years. The race that I'm doing in September is this really bizarre... Do people uh, die doing this? I mean... Pe- people don't die. It's amazing. You would see, it's, it's actually really inspiring to watch uh, sure. people I'm do sure. this race. And, and there's a lot of older people that do it. It's really cool. Do you count yourself now as older, or do you mean uh, even older I than you? I guess there there are people that are that are older than me that do it. Uh, yeah. I'm not making fun of you, uh, of you, by the way, because I'm 45, so uh, we're almost the same age. We're the same age. Yeah, yeah basically. Um, the race that I'm doing in September is called Otillo, and it's in Sweden, and it is a it's the World Championships of something called Swim Run, which is a big deal in Europe. Nobody's ever heard of it in the United States, but it's a very long, like a nine hour race. Over the course of the day, you end up running about 40 miles and swimming about seven miles but there's 52 transitions so you're in the kind of archipelago uh south of stockholm and you you're swimming across these waterways and then climbing up these rocks and running across these little islands and then jumping back in the water and swimming 
and uh, and literally changing it up the whole time. So you're doing the whole thing in like this modified wetsuit with your running shoes on. Like you leave your running shoes on while you're swimming, and you're tethered to a teammate. So you do it as a duo, like in pairs. Are you blindfolded or in, in any? Did you oh, braid I, your hair yeah, together? Know, like what? Like, anything else you can do to increase the degree of difficulty? Here? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, it's it's a new world for me. I'm still learning about it, and it scares me, which is why I'm excited to do it. Uh, but I'll let you know back in in September after I do it. First person on this podcast to use the word archipelago. Um, so really good. That well, was awesome. I'll, I'll always have that. You will. <laughs> um, so so. Um, other areas of, of your life, I mean, you have, how many kids do you have? Three? Four kids. Four. Mm-hmm. What are their ages? 22, 20, 13, and 9. So um, how has meditation impacted your family life? Uh, I would say that um, it's similar to, it's, it's, the similar, it's similar to how it's improved my athletics, really. I think it's, it's about being able to be present in whatever you're doing, to be able to show up and, and actually be there as opposed to, you know, sort of being distracted all the time. So, for example, you know, there can be, you can be a stay-at-home mom or dad, but if you're sort of on your phone the whole time that you're with your kids or you're reading the newspaper or you're anxious or, um, you know, caught up in your mind about other things that are bugging you, uh, then how present are you really? So for me, it's allowed me to, you know, flick that switch and really be where I'm at uh, in whatever capacity that is as a parent, as a partner to my wife, et cetera. And to also to be able to not get caught up in, you know, the drama that inevitably occurs when, you know, siblings are not getting along or stuff your kids are doing that you're not happy with. So you're not being reactive to that and you're able to sort of contemplate the appropriate parenting response. Four kids is ambitious. I mean, I've got one and um, he's like, uh, you ever see that movie um, with, uh, Jurassic World uh-huh. where they make a dinosaur in the lab it was, we made him in the lab because he was an IVF baby oh, and right. then he turns uh-huh. out to be a complete jerk the dinosaur and then destroys everything uh-huh. that's a little bit like what's happening <laughs> in my house well it's been a tri- it's been fun it's been a tribe you know my, the two older ones are uh, my wife's boys from a previous marriage um, so uh, I'm their stepdad but they've lived with me since they were three and four years old and, and their father has since passed away uh, and then two little girls that uh, my wife and I had together it's adorable so can you tell me a little bit of, you, you've told me this offline but um, and I know you give speeches about this but tell us a little bit about your story of how you became this endurance athlete, because you're, as you you, re- you referenced it a little bit earlier, but you weren't living the healthiest lifestyle uh, for much of your early years. Right. So, so I had this struggle with drugs and alcohol throughout my 20s. I got sober at 31. And, you know, I was somebody that as a young person had a lot of promise. Like I graduated top of my class in high school. I got into every college I applied to. I went to Stanford. Um, I was a world-ranked swimmer. I competed on two NC2A Division I championship teams. Uh, You know, I had the world by the tail at one point, and I squandered a lot of those opportunities as a result of my, you know, issues with substance. And so when I got sober, I became very intent upon repairing all the wreckage that I had created as a result of my drinking and using. And I sort of threw all of my addictive tendencies and Mm. obsessive compulsive behavior Mm -hmm. patterns into my work, into my profession, to try to, you know, prove to myself that I could repair this and also to the world and to society. And so I kind of chased this American dream. And I was a corporate lawyer. 
on the partnership. You know, and I, I was I, I was successful in that regard. So by the time I was 39, you know, successful attorney, partnership track, you know, nice sports car in the driveway. You know, had met my wife, building a family, lived in a really nice home. And so before, go ahead. before I'm yeah. just going to interrupt because there's a plot twist coming. Before we get mm-hmm. to that. What we what do you think was undergirding the the problems with drugs and alcohol, and then the and the kind of diversionary addiction tactic that you took in your thirties of throwing all of that into uh, your professional ambition? What was what was going on in your mind that that made all of that happen? It's kind of the sixty four thousand dollar question. You know, why are you an alcoholic? Yeah. And you know, I try not to spend too much time trying to parse that because I don't know what benefit that avails me. Um, you know, is it genetic? Is it something that happened to me when I was a kid? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that I was one of those kids who was insecure and kind of a loner, had difficulty making friends, always felt like I was separate from. And I found, you know, I had, I, I just, I felt like everybody had the rule book for life and I didn't. Yeah, but I mean, I, so, I, I find that so surprising but, because, because if you, to meet you now at 50, you're like, you're very cool. Yeah, I was not, not a cool, cool kid. No, oh, I was okay. a very nerdy kid. You know, I was okay. I was very much uh, you know different. I would say, um, and I think drugs and alcohol helped me. You know, they yeah. help they help give me social skills. Initially, you know, it starts out as fun. You know, it works in the beginning. It brought me out of my shell. Suddenly, I could go to parties. I could talk to girls. I could crack jokes, and it was like all good for a period of time. And that's why you do more and you do mm-hmm. more. Um, but, you know, it turned dark for me. It started to, you know, erode my ambitions and it really broke my instincts and, you know, made me uh, do things that I would not ordinarily do. And really, uh, you know, at the end, it was it was bad. I was a I was a around the clock drinker. You know, really? Vodka tonic in the shower, sneaking drinks throughout the day. Wow. You know, it was bad. And, and I remember when I was in rehab, one of the counselors said, you know, after like when I went to rehab, I finally told people what I was actually doing because this was like my big secret. Even though everybody knew I was an alcoholic, I knew I was an alcoholic for a long time before I got sober. They said, yeah, you know, Rich, like you have a pretty progressed case of alcohol. Like we usually see this in 65-year-old lifelong drinkers. Like this is a serious thing. Like because when I showed up in rehab, I thought I was going to do a spin dry and, you know, a couple of weeks and just get back to my job. And they were like, yeah, we think you should stick around. And that's why I ended up staying for such a long period mm-hmm. of time. Like, I got it. Good um, for you for getting it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been a linear progression of growth either. But it did save my life. And, and you know, to this day, sobriety is my number one priority and I'm very active in the in the recovery community. But, you know, to kind of get back to the to get back to the story. So. You know, I still have, I'm still an extreme, I've always been an extreme personality. I was in my swimming career, I was academically, and that's just how I'm wired for better or worse. So throwing myself into that kind of workaholism, uh, you know, worked to the extent that it progressed my career, but I never took a beat to sort of consider what it was that I actually wanted to do. I was so obsessed with just being viewed in the eyes of society as somebody who was successful and responsible. So I kind of chased this, you know, legal <laughs> partnership thing without really taking a minute to decide whether that was actually something I really wanted. So by the time I was 39, and meanwhile, you know, I stopped taking care of myself physically. So I became kind of a junk food addict. I put on 50 pounds. And on the inside, I was I was kind of depressed, like a couch potato. 
you know, sort of sliding into middle age on a crash course with, with chronic lifestyle illness. And so shortly before I turned 40, I had this moment where this kind of existential crisis that I was harboring crashed into a health scare where I was walking up a flight of stairs to go to sleep late one night and I had to pause. I was winded and out of breath and had tightness in my chest and you know sweat on my brow and really felt like I was on the precipice of having a heart attack. It was a very frightening moment. And it was very similar to the day that I decided I was finally going to get sober, like a very crystallized moment in time where I realized like I'm having that experience again and I have an opportunity to really change my life. And so I was able to like, um, I had the cognizance to understand that this was a special moment and I really grabbed onto it. And that was the beginning of trying to course correct how I was living. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So did you quit the law firm? What happened? Not overnight. Um, you know, I started playing around with diet and nutrition to try to find a way of eating that would allow my body to heal itself and feel better. And that was not an uh, overnight process either. I was trying everything. I did juice cleanse. I tried a bunch of different diets and really stumbled into eating plant-based as a last resort after trying everything else and, and not finding success. And when I went completely 100% plant-based, like no animal products, no processed foods, uh, in a very short period of time, like a week to 10 days, I felt unbelievably better. Uh, I, I, felt I had more energy than I had since I was like a teenager, and I realized I had kind of backed into something that perhaps could be quite profound and started to educate myself about diet and nutrition. And with that came a, uh, a desire to sort of take care of myself physically again. And I had an impulse and a desire to get fit once again, to exercise, which I hadn't felt in many years. And that was a gradual process of just, you know, going outside and jogging a little bit. I didn't have aspirations to return to competitive athletics in my 40s. I really just wanted to lose the gut around my midsection and be able to enjoy my kids at their energy level. 
Um, but with each kind of successive week that went by, I was enjoying it more and more, and the pounds kind of melted away. And I was experiencing, you know, like this this joy that I hadn't felt uh, since I was like a kid, you know, when I loved swimming. And I just wanted more and more of that. And I made a decision that I was going to follow that impulse. Like it, it was, I was starting to unpack like the, you know, what it was about me that just made me happy in a very simple, primal way. And I decided to listen to that instead of repress that and just do kind of what uh, society expected me to do. Meanwhile, I'm practicing law and I'm doing all that kind of stuff, but ultimately I ended up quitting the big law firm. I started a little practice with a couple friends and started to have a little bit more agency over my time. And in a very short period of time, I felt like I had I was starting to morph into this different person, like a completely different person who was more comfortable in my own skin, living more kind of authentic to who I was. And it was so profound that it kind of led me to this question of human possibility and potential because in a period of like maybe six months, I went from like this 50 pound overweight kind of couch potato guy into somebody who was really excited about being outdoors and going out on a trail at dawn and feeling slim and in my body again. And I wanted to, it, it, it started, it, what it did was, it made me realize that I had all these blind spots about what I'm actually capable of. And I wanted to explore the outer perimeters of that. And um, when I found out about this world of ultra endurance sports that just fascinated me and it seemed like a, uh, a perfect template to kind of explore that for myself. So I, I think, I mean, there's a way in which your story, as amazing as it is, could be whittled down to a bit of a cliche of just, you know, follow your dream. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect that some people listening to this are like, well, you know, I, I don't have the luxury to do what this dude did. I can't, you know, quit my job and, and start running all over the world. So what do you say to people who, have, who listen to your story and say, all right, well, that's for some other people, not mm -hmm. me? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I actually you know, went through kind of a financial dismantling as we underwent this transformation, actually as a family, really. So it wasn't easy. I would say to anybody who, who has that reaction that it's not about quitting your job and following, you know, it's not about like making these radical overnight changes. I think that we all have untapped reservoirs of potential. And I think we have blind spots when it comes to things that make us happy. Uh, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to kind of conjure up or try to reminisce or remember things that gave them joy as a child. And to the extent that those are things that one does not do anymore for whatever reason, that there's always a way to, to express those in your life. And it doesn't have to mean quitting your job. Like if you liked playing the banjo when you were 12 or you liked writing jokes, then maybe there's a way to go and do an open mic night or to take a guitar lesson or do that thing. Find a way in your free time to explore that part of you that is underexpressed but ultimately, uh, you know, a fundamental component of, of who you are and what brings you happiness. So how serious did you get about the athletics? How far did you go with it? In, in the ultra-endurance yeah, world? Yeah. I, got, I got pretty serious about it. Yeah, I got pretty serious about it. I hired a coach. I, got, I, I, I learned about this race, Ultraman, and I became obsessed. And I was like, I've got to find a way to do this race. Like a switch was flicked, and this illogical impulse kind of 
took hold of me, and I just knew I had to find a way to toe the line at that race for whatever reason. It made no logical sense whatsoever. What did your wife say about this? And she was always really supportive. She's like, go for it. That's fantastic. And she knew that I was struggling and suffering. And she saw that this was a way for me to, it was like a journey to wholeness. Like it really was, it really was a spiritual adventure for me of trying to reconnect with, uh, with myself in a profound way. Uh, so she always had my back, and I could have never done any of the things that I've done without her support. But, yeah, it got really intense. I mean, at, at its most intense, I was training upwards of 25 hours a week, so it almost became like a job. And I was juggling practicing law at the time. And so I can remember being out on a long tra- long training rides, and my phone would ring, and I would pull over to the side of the road, and I would negotiate some deal with <laughs> clients and other lawyers. And I'd be like, if they could see where, what I'm actually doing right now, they, they wouldn't believe it. So it was a bit of a tightrope act for a little while um, until I kind of came out of the closet with what I was actually doing. Uh, but, yeah, I took it very seriously um, and, because I wanted to be able to do it and say I gave it everything I got to see what I was actually capable of doing. And uh, so what does your professional portfolio consist of now? Now, uh, I stopped practicing law in 2012 when my first book came out, Finding Ultra, and I just cut the cord completely um, because I'd been weaning myself off of it for some time, uh, but it was always like this lifeline. You know, the phone would ring and I could do a deal or represent some client. And, and, and I knew that if I didn't completely cut that cord, that I would always go back to mm-hmm. it. And I wanted to be able to just completely jump into the abyss. So today, my life consists of doing my podcast and traveling for public speaking, writing books. I've got a few products on my site. I've got some online courses and the like. And just basically being an advocate at large for healthy living. Your job is to be rich roll, basically. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good job for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody else can do uh, that that's job. That's right. Nobody can take it away from me. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, veganism, or you prefer plant-based diet. Uh, that's another one that people hear and think, I, I, I can't get there. Uh-huh. I'm speaking personally now, because I, and I've talked about this on the, on the show before, like, I would like to do it on many mm-hmm. levels. I mostly, So what's holding you back? Mostly just to say, mostly... Because of animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is is the, the biggest motivator. Um, I don't know that it would have some sort of – I've eaten very close to vegan on – if not full-on full vegan on lengthy meditation retreats, and I didn't notice any sort of major physical change because um, I eat reasonably healthy as it is, but – What's holding me back? Uh, I would ha- it would have to. I really would have to get my wife on board, mm-hmm. and I think she feels very strongly too about animal cruelty. And we just haven't been able to do it. And we have. And I think the real issue is we haven't made it a priority. Frankly, we've talked about it. We both agree on ethical grounds that the case is really strong. We just haven't made it a priority. Mm-hmm. Do you cook at home? I do. do. Not as much as I should. I make at-home smoothies, including smoothies from your cookbook and uh-huh. also a smoothie that you just one day when you were in my office told me I should have, which uh-huh. is uh, spinach, kale, banana, blueberry, and I add avocado, and it's delicious even though it sounded disgusting to me at the time. Um, I also make just you know peanut butter, uh, almond milk, uh, Greek yogurt, well, you wouldn't like the Greek yogurt part, and bananas uh-huh. um, for my kid, and he loves it. Um, so, And I, you know, I cook 
yeah, I do a little bit of cooking at home. Right. All right. So, so what's holding you back sounds like it's it's prioritization, right? Yeah. Laziness so and inertia. Right, right, right. It's interesting. You also, know, like my wife, I, I couldn't do it without I, – I, I don't think I could just start yeah, eating I understand. differently than her. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. You know, I think it's a, it's a leap of faith for people. Um, once you kind of make that commitment, though, and step over the line, living in New York City, it's so easy to do. You know, it's so easy Not to do. Not easy. It wouldn't be easy. I think you'd be surprised. Every dinner I have with friends would be a – Discussion. I'm sure when you go out to f- eat with friends, it's like, well, you're in L.A. and you move in uh, wellness circles, so it's probably fine. Well, yeah, like now I'm like everybody knows it's the yeah. guy, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, but at first, I'm sure it was a massive pain in the you-know-what. It, it can be. There's a lot of mental projection about that, though, that ends up being uh, not as challenging as you might imagine. You know, I've traveled all over the world. I've in restaurants all the time. I've never had an issue making it work. Where there's a will, there's a way, and there's you know there's there's certain social graces that you learn to to navigate it, because the last thing I want to be in a restaurant is the guy who's like you know making a stink and mm-hmm. drawing attention to himself, and you know sometimes I'll just excuse myself from the dinner table and go find the waiter and say hey can you just like make me the biggest salad you've ever seen or just you know do th- you know throw together a bunch of vegetables on some rice and. And, and that way you go back to the table and you don't – you realize like people – you think everyone's judging you and looking at you. People are self-obsessed. They yeah. don't really care. They're thinking about themselves. Absolutely. You know what I mean? A, a friend – this is just a so somewhat of a tangent, but uh, I think that's such a great point. A former boss of mine uh, who had endured a few sort of tough public trials – where you know he had to, there were uh, scandals would be too strong a word, but um, he had he had to endure some stuff where things were written about him that he didn't like, and he said going through that is like being seasick. To you, it feels like the world is ending. To everybody else, it's like mildly amusing. Right, and it's true. We're all in the stars of our own movie. We uh-huh. don't, you know, we we only, we're only like sort of mildly interested in other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I guess. You're, there's some mental projection going on on my end on the social aspect of veganism. But here's the thing. When you when you break it down and you really look at it, it's it's kind of an amazing lifestyle because right now we're in the midst of this insane healthcare crisis. You know, something like 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. One out of every three people are going to die of heart disease. Uh, they're projecting that by 2030, 50% of Americans are going to be diabetic or pre-diabetic. Uh, 75% of all healthcare costs are attributable to these chronic lifestyle illnesses. And the truth is, if you go plant-based, you can basically opt out of becoming one of those statistics. And it's an amazing way to not succumb to these diseases that are killing millions and millions of people. Meanwhile, uh, you know, animal agriculture is res- is is basically res- is is like the number one culprit when it comes to almost every single man-made environmental ill on the planet. More greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation combined. Uh, you know, it's it's wreaking havoc on our planet. So there's the environmental concern. There's the ethical considerations that are important to you, and there's the health considerations. And I don't know of any other lifestyle that can like check all of those boxes. It's really profound. It's a, it's it's really profound. It's a beautiful way to live more sustainably um, on this planet. And from kind of a meditation perspective, it's you know there's there's less sort of uh, karmic toll. Yeah. And 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 it and it just feels good to live that way. It's not about being on a a, a pulpit and and judging anyone else for their lifestyle decisions. It's a personal choice. 
But I can tell you that, you know, I got into it for personal health reasons. I just didn't want to be fat. I didn't want to be lazy. Uh, and now the environmental concerns and the ethical concerns have taken the forefront and, you know, are, are, are of primary interest to me. I remember when we had – you came to my office to interview me for your podcast many years ago and – And you, I'm so I'm taking credit for you launching a podcast. Though. Yes, you should actually. It was really <laughs> probably – you came with these fancy little mics and I was like, wow, this looks like fun. <laughs> and now look at this. Yes, I'm in a, we're, we're, we're in a radio streaming. studio. It's yes. unbelievable. <clears throat> it was, I work for Disney so we have a few resources. Mm-hmm. But when, I remember when we turned the mics off, I asked you a bunch of questions about veganism because this is just something that I, I've – it's really been in the back of my head for a long time. Um, and one of the questions I asked was how do you – I mean if you don't – are you getting enough protein to be able to perform at the level you need? And I just – could you repeat what you said to me? Yeah, there's so uh, so many misconceptions about protein and a lot of it is driven by uh, marketing forces because when you go to the grocery store, it looks like every packaged food product in bold capital letters will tell you how much protein is in the product. And it's almost impossible from a consumer perspective to not kind of intuitively take away from that that, well, we must need tons of protein. Like if I don't drink a protein shake within moments of waking up in the morning, how am I going to possibly breathe air in and out of my lungs? The truth of the matter is that we actually don't need that much protein, about 10% of calories. When you're talking about protein, you're really talking about amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I wish the word protein didn't even exist and we were just talking about amino acids. And what we really need are the nine essential amino acids, which are the ones that our bodies cannot synthesize on our own. We need to get them from foods. But turns out they're in copious amounts in all kinds of plant foods. If you randomly graze on plants all day long, you'll be hard-pressed to not meet your daily recommended uh, allowance of protein. And I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm, f- I'm 50, like I said. I can still go out and kill it with the best of them. I've never had any problems building lean muscle mass or recovering in between workouts. Uh, so I think the whole thing is a big red herring. And and it's just not something that we need to really be concerned about or focused on. The truth is, is that no doctors are treating patients for a protein deficiency, although we all think we're not getting enough protein. What we really should be talking about is fiber. Most people are not getting enough fiber in their diet. Uh, and I just think that we need to really take a look at this obsession that we have with protein and understand that it is misplaced. There are plenty of amazing, uh, accomplished plant-based athletes out there, more and more every day. And you know, it's easy for me to say skinny, long-distance runner guy, but there are MMA fighters and boxers and mm. bodybuilders and mm. power lifters and you know, athletes where speed and agility and force and strength are of paramount importance. And they'll all tell you the same thing. Their recovery is better. They, they're less prone to get injured. Um, and as an athlete, recovery is like the holy grail. The faster you can recover in between workouts, the harder you can train. And when you protract that out over a course of a season or a number of years, you see tremendous performance gains. Plus, we have these gigantic, large herbivore animals, uh, you know, like the rhino and the uh, you know the gorilla. These are these are herbivores, and they're able to build tremendous strength eating just plants. And I think there's something to be learned from that. If people want to learn more about you, 
How can they do so? Where should we go? What should we read, et cetera, et cetera, if we want to know more about Rich Roll? Uh, my website, richroll.com, is the best place. My podcast is the Rich Roll Podcast. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, and I'm just at Rich Roll on Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty f- easy to find on and, the internet. And, and the books? Uh, my book is called Finding Ultra. It's my memoir. And then the, uh, the cookbook is called The Plant Power Way. Plant Power Way, right. That's right. right. It's in our kitchen. Yeah. Um, such a pleasure to have you on, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. How are we going to get you vegan? What do we need to do? Uh, I think every conversation like this helps. <laughs> I had Mattia Ricard on recently. Uh-huh. Who also got in my head about this. So it's 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 in there. It's percolating. It's, it's, it's percolating in a very powerful way. So it, this has been very useful. Yeah, cool. So Thanks, I really appreciate Dan. it. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.